You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. You always right to ask, how come I don't write back? Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 122.2. This time for real, those of you who are in for our surprise Christmas episode know that we jimmied with the numbering a little bit to disguise the fact that David Grubbs made a one-episode comeback. He is back to working on the dissertation. Hopefully we will hear from him soon, but uh, as for me, Michael, I haven't really uh, heard much from Kansas. You? Uh, he posts some amusing things to Facebook every now and then, but other than that. But no direct communication. No, uh, but he's pretty much been ignoring us all semester. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, we have, however, gotten direct communication from Dr. Michael Farmer. He is an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you doing today, Michael? Uh, I'm pretty good. Had a good class. And now I'm, uh, you know, kind of revved up. Rocking the podcast. Uh As you might hear us drop every once in a while, listeners, we are recording in the afternoons this semester, so uh, I'm not sure how that affects the listeners on that end. Somebody's doctoral dissertation will be on that one day about about the Christian Humanist podcast, whether they record in the morning or afternoon. And that truly will be the end of the university. That's true. true. (laughs) Now, usually before we get to our subject matter for the day, we talk about uh, listener email and listener feedback on Facebook. Today, we've gotten such a volume of it over the Christmas break uh, that we're de- dedicating an entire show to it. Uh, so, Michael, I'm going to go ahead and lead off with an email from Todd Pedler, our listener from, uh, is it Luther College? or Luther Yeah, College. Luther College in Iowa. Uh, Todd says thus, Greetings from the frigid south, relative to Michael anyhow. I listened with great anticipation to your episode on Orwell's politics in the English language and found it full of excitement and thought. Full of excellent, pardon me, food for thought. Much as I'd love to take credit for suggesting the topic, however, I'm fairly certain that it wasn't me. It was We'll find out a little bit. Oh, well. Sorry. We just found out now who it was. I'll go ahead and jump down to this part of his email. The six summary points of Orwell's essay are spot on. Uh, I see each of them in my students' writing. Something that Orwell doesn't directly address, though, though I suspect he would argue for it, is the idea that muddled writing belies muddled thinking. What do you all think about that connection? Do you think, as I do, that looseness with language is most directly related to looseness in logic and in thinking? Another factor, I suspect, is loss of richness in student vocabulary. I'd be interested in hearing your comments on these concepts and whether you could point us to any particular writers who deal directly with the degradation of writing as it is connected to a loss in clear thinking. I know Weaver might be a good possibility, but I can't think of a particular essay in which he specifically tackles this connection. I'm going to stop there. Are there any resources that you would suggest, Michael, for that particular issue? Well, nothing is coming immediately to mind, Nathan. I, uh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. And of course, I didn't bother to do any kind of research before sitting down to record this episode. <laughs> 
Um, I'll, I'll go back to a resource, actually, that I, I pointed up in the episode itself, namely David Bartholomew's essay, uh, Inventing the University. I think that he has a more psychologically and sociologically rich account of what's going on with student writing rather than simply saying, you know, with a sort of dismissive wave that it's muddled thinking. What he argues is that students are, especially undergrads, but to some extent grad students as well, are in the process of shaping an identity as scholarly writers uh, and that it's a process that, you know, you have to grow into and when we catch them in freshman and sophomore core curriculum classes, uh, one of the tasks before us, whether we take it on or not, is to guide them into a more articulate and a more, um, I, I guess, a more graceful use of that kind of language. So I tend to go with Bartholomew on that one. I don't see this as a decline in uh, human civilization or anything like that. Not that you said that, Todd. Uh, but rather I see it as a developmental stage. And students who have the motivation, that's certainly a factor, but also the coaching and the guidance from professors to move beyond that, I think have a real chance of joining the guild, so to speak, uh, that doesn't really show up in those early drafts of sophomore papers. Nathan, do you have any particular advice for how to help students improve their vocabularies? Uh, improving vocabularies, I mean, that, in my mind, comes with time. Uh, you know, I tend not to assign vocabulary lists, except when I teach Old English, just because it's a foreign language and you've got to have some vocabulary quizzes there. Hard, hard to learn the language without learning vocabulary there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you have any vocabulary builders that you tend to use? No, other than I try to push them to be as specific as they can in their, in their speaking, as exact as they can. Of course, I'm not exact at all when I speak on this show, so I feel like a hypocrite. <laughs> I've been, now, I've one been thing... on a real kick lately of asking students to define, 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 because I figure, and I, I think that goes along with building vocabulary, because as you make these definitions, you learn that you know, words mean different things from one another, and sometimes oh, the sure, word sure. you've been using isn't good enough. Shades of connotation. And one thing that I, I discourage students to do is to use the thesaurus recklessly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a dictionary. I think Scott Kreider says that in the Office of Assertion. He says you should never use a thesaurus without a dictionary. Right, right. And I just omit the without a dictionary. I say until you're a <laughs> junior in college and you know all of the words in the thesaurus, don't use a thesaurus. I tell the uh, same thing about semicolons. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I like that. Well, moving on with uh, Todd's email, two places in the podcast I'd like to comment on. Uh, first, the connection between Weaver and Orwell on ultimate terms and meaningless words. Uh, when Nathan pointed out the common ground the two have in this regard, my mind leapt further to Godwin's Law, uh, which you've also taken up on the Christian Humanist podcast. Certainly the phenomenon of argument-ending declarations of Hitler or fascist are deeply interconnected with both the laziness in the use of words and our unwillingness to take the time that real communication requires uh, and that Orwell and Weaver point us to. A second place is the point at which you had pointed out that Orwell's sixth rule, his exception clause, I suspect that using barbarous, that by using barbarous, Orwell meant crude, unrefined, or uncivil. But interesting to me is the origin of that term, which involves incomprehensibility of speech. Uh, now, I, that was one of those places where you and Danny really took me to task. That's right. uh, because I, I saw that as a bit of elitism. Uh, you two put me in my place. 
Uh, I'm still not convinced I was wrong, but if listeners, if you want to go back to that episode, you can call that fight as Todd just did. You know, I'm not, I'm not convinced you were wrong either, but, uh, like, like the Socrates of the clouds, I enjoy making the weaker argument appear the stronger. (laughs) All right. Now Todd at that point hit enter too soon. Uh, so I'm going to have to jump to another email here. So Pardon me, listeners, while I click around. He told you to uh, read from the second one, not the first one, Nathan. Oh, son of a gun. I didn't realize the second one contained the first one. Uh, all right, so real quick, uh, he confirms he is a baseball player himself. Around the horn is a baseball term. He corrects me, as listeners are do well to do. Uh, you don't go around the horn when there are runners on base. Thank you, Todd. I should have noted on that. Uh, but... I do believe the term, the origin of the term is nautical. Todd goes on to say, before the Panama Canal was dug, the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific involved sailing south to the tip of South America or Cape Horn. So to go from England to the American West Coast, a ship had literally to go around the horn. Uh, and secondly, and finally, Michael, I absolutely love your inadvertent suggestion of an Orwellian remake of Animal House. That would make a fantastic film. Yeah, I called it Animal House on the podcast like a moron. <laughs> oh, although I think if you did an Orwellian Animal House, you'd basically come out with Brave New World. <laughs> or the modern the modern university. Isn't that what I just said? Oh. Michael, won't you take an email? This is from the, the actual suggester of Orwell, which is Carter Stepper. Hey, hey. He says, hi, gents. I wanted to wish you all a merry old Christmas. Thanks again for the Orwell show. When I suggested it, I assumed I might see it sometime next year and was pleasantly surprised to see it that quickly. The Christmas special was wonderful. It was good to hear Dr. Grubbs back on. He's not a doctor yet, unfortunately. And the Milton piece provided some excellent food for thought to add to my Advent readings. He certainly communicates the drama of the Christmas story in a way that is rarely seen, even in the best Christmas sermons. I thought I'd make a couple more suggestions that came to mind in case you're running short this next semester. Totalitarianism. (laughs) Cheery, I know. Travel, Christian visual art, and one of my perennial fascinations, monasticism. Now, we did do an episode on travel, did we not? I think so. It was way back when. I was living in Florida. Yeah, so Carter, if you go back through our archives, you will find a travel episode, I'm almost certain. I'm pretty sure we did one. And monasticism we have touched on in the asceticism episode, I believe. Right, right. And I'll I'll borrow from the uh, David Grubbs word hoard here and say that monasticism has not been its own episode, but it's been a well from which many episodes have dipped. Although I, I get, you know, I, I teach uh, intro to Christian literature this semester, and, mm-hmm. and so much of that stuff is monks that I would probably be up for doing a monasticism episode. I, I like the monks more and more the more I read about them. All right, all right. We might do an, a monasticism episode then. Have you ever been to a monastery? No, I have not. Me neither. There's a bunch up here, though, that allow visitors, I was thinking. You know, Heidegger used to... Uh, he finished all his books and lectures in a monastery every summer. He would go spend, I think, three or four weeks in a monastery. And I've, huh. uh, I've often thought about doing that with my own writing projects, just to I be more not like know Heidegger. That. Uh, you know, in terms <laughs> of ways to be like Heidegger, it seemed like a better choice than joining the Nazi party. Right, right. I, I hate Illinois Nazis. Um, and he says, I hope you all have a Merry Christmas season, and thank you for your continued blessing. I have been encouraged and challenged to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest areas of study that I never would have before, and I appreciate very much the work you put into the show. Well, thank you, Carter. Yeah, we don't take compliments very well, but <laughs> thanks. Very good, very good. 
Uh, this next one comes to us from Brett Gilbert. Uh, it's a relatively brief one. Uh, Noble Humanists. How about an episode on the Scarlet Letter? Here's why I think it would work, even though it's not in all of your literary wheelhouses. Number one, I'm sure all of you have read the book, and nearly every one of your listeners has read it too, because we all had to read it in high school. Did you read it in no, high school? I did. I, I did not. I have read it, of course, but I didn't read it in high school. Yeah, I, I think I've read it three or four times now. Oh. Yeah, once as a high schooler, once as an undergrad, once as a grad student, and I think I actually had a moment of madness as a professor and reread it. Oh, you don't like it. <laughs> No, I do. It's just I have no idea why I dedicated the time to that when there are other tasks at hand. <laughs> Probably because there's other tasks at hand. Point taken. Reason number three, the treatment of Christianity. Oh, reason number two, sorry. The subject matter is intensely Christian. Reason number three, the treatment of Christianity is interesting and ripe for discussion, discussion among professing Christians. Personally, I see the world in which the story functions as a Christless Christianity. Jesus is not mentioned in the book, really not even implied, and therefore forgiveness, mercy, grace, and absolution of guilt aren't present either, at least I would argue, not in any fulfilling or functional forms. You may disagree or see this from a different angle. That's why I think it would be a great discussion. And number four, it's a great book. Uh, I'd, I'd be up for a Scarlet Letter episode sometime. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I used to hate that book. Um, I uh, I came to terms with it a few years ago. There's a post somewhere. It's either on my old blog, Letter on Wheels, or on the Christian Humanist blog about why I ended up liking the Scarlet Letter okay. It's also oh, worth see, I've, I've always enjoyed it. You know, Updike rewrote that book three times. Yeah, and I read one of them without catching the joke. Oh, you read Roger's version, right? I did, yeah. I did. I, I thought it was a book about... A fallen preacher, I... which it, which it absolutely is. <laughs> so you know, and you don't you don't have to read them as Scarlet Letter rewrites, but they they definitely are. Each one of them is from a different perspective. It's about that central triad: Roger Chillingsworth and uh, Dimsdale and Hester Prynne. Each one is from a different perspective. Well, Roger's yeah, version is the best. What, what I feel like Michael is the person who loved uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a child, and then finds out at age thirty that's about Jesus. Whoa, man! <laughs> It's like, well, now I can't unsee that. <laughs> you know, uh, I was told that in fifth grade when we read it for the first time, so I never had the opportunity to discover it. I've always kind of resented that. You read Roger's version as a fifth grader? Dum dum. <laughs> yep, folks, we're we're here all semester. <laughs> Won't you take one, Michael? All right, this is another long one. From I always want to call him Jan Vermeer, but it's uh, Ross Vermeer. <laughs> We all do. I wish I wish we were getting emails from Jan Vermeer. No offense to you, Ross. Are you related <laughs> to uh, Jan Vermeer? I ask as if he could hear me. <laughs> Greetings, gentlemen. I wrote you a few weeks ago in response to your metamodernism episode and noted then that I was working through the full CH episode catalog. I've continued with that project, and I'm still enjoying it very much indeed. I thought I'd send over a few comments today since I've just finished episode 99 on online education. Remember that one? I was so sure oh, I was yeah. fired for that episode. <laughs> I've worked at the Open University of Hong Kong for more than 20 years, and since its institution, since its founding in 1989, has been dedicated to distance education, I have plenty to say. I'll try to restrain myself, however, to three main points. I was brought up reformed, and we Calvinists know that's the number of points God foreordained to be made in any one sitting, except for the five points of Calvinism. There you go. Oh, uh, first, in your history of distance ed, you covered only the American experience, which is fair enough, but seriously incomplete. There's a widespread, international, really, stream of open and distance education that was sparked by the establishment and great success of the Open University of the UK in the late 1960s. 
My university is in fact intentionally modeled on the UKOU, as are open universities in India, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, several African countries, Australia, New Zealand, and more. The original OKOU is huge, about a quarter million students, I think, but it's well respected in the UK and internationally. It usually doesn't get ranked with other British universities since it's so different. When people try to force comparisons, it's usually placed in the top 20, sometimes in the top 10. The, this worldwide OU movement is undergirded by a very positive, almost noble narrative of bringing high-quality higher education to those who couldn't under, otherwise enjoy it, including the working poor, uh, the disabled, those living in remote areas, those for who, for whatever reason, squandered their chances at a degree when they were 18, etc., as well as to lots of grad students with lives to lead that they don't want disrupted. My main point here is that the reputation of distance ed outside the USA is probably a, quite a bit higher than within it. Do you know anything about this open university system, Nathan? I, I was aware of it, and, I, and actually when I read Ross's email, I, I, I mentally kicked myself for not mentioning it in that episode, because I, I am aware of it, and I should have brought that up. It does sound like a very noble project. Oh, sure, sure. Second, although I thought your discussion of classroom seminar versus discussion board was good, there may be more to it, probably. I did an <laughs> MA with the OKOU, in fact, via distant ed with a discussion board for our seminars, and I've done graduate study face-to-face -face as well. I found that writing my responses on a discussion board made me think more carefully about what I was going to say, since a permanent record was being made. This record of ongoing discussion is also very useful later on in the course. It's a resource students can return to, whereas a face-to-face -face seminar is ephemeral. I also found putting up a discussion board post and awaiting and filling responses to be quite stimulating. It's not the moment-by-moment -moment excitement of a heated F2F, I guess that's face-to-face, -face discussion, yes. but I don't think it's ultimately much different from being temporally extended. All right, I still, and I, 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 still feel, I feel like I made that point in episode ninety nine, but I, I might have underplayed it to the point where Ross felt like he needed to reiterate it. So, thank you for that, Ross. Michael still disagrees. I, I think you're basically right, Ross. So this is another place where an, an old fight between Michael and myself is still unresolved. What, what I will admit um, is that the online discussion forums have real goods to offer. And they're not the same goods as face-to-face -face discussions, but that, but they're they're also not lesser versions of the same goods. They're 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 distinct. Um, okay. So with with my upper level classes, I tend to have online discussion boards that the students have to post to, um, and they have to come in and do face-to-face -face discussions. And I think the online one things are very very good for laying their initial thoughts out there, but I think that they correct each other and get more to the spirit of the text in the face-to-face -face discussions. Now, maybe that's because of the way I'm running things. Maybe if I didn't have a face-to-face -face discussion, that, that function would also be served on the discussion boards. But as it is, I'm going to say there are two different types of goods. All right, all right. Third, he says, I thought you missed some opportunities to synthesize some of your very good points about uses of technology when you shifted to discussing MOOCs. Some MOOCs are indeed blunt instruments. A talking head plus online quizzes does not a good course make. But there is so much more that can be done with online resources. Students can be granted easy access to videos, animations, simulations, podcasts. Why couldn't an hour a week of panel discussion on a topic, much like the CH podcast, be used as a course resource? And so on. There's also scope for building in face-to-face -face contact as part of an online course. This is what my university does. Students are given the option of attending monthly two- or three-hour seminar sessions in addition to the print and online resources. So the possibilities have only just begun to be tapped. I'll agree with that. And I mean, that that's one of the things, that's why I wanted to make such a strong distinction between the MOOC model and what I would consider well-planned, well-executed online education. I, and I think that was one of the points all three of us agreed on there. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the and what's interesting, and actually, Danny Anderson has has linked to a number of these articles on Twitter and on Facebook. If you're uh, not following Danny Anderson on Twitter, you should. Uh, but he linked to articles where actually some of the pioneers of the massively online open class have actually said, yeah, this is really bad education. <laughs> I just want the MOOCs to to uh, meld with the MMORPGs. <laughs> I, I would love to see a World of Warcraft MOOC. I, I Actually, I think those worlds are full of MOOCs. <laughs> I, I was wondering when that would happen. <laughs> Finally, he says, like all good Calvinists, I'll cheat here and sneak in an extra point in my conclusion. One other benefit of technology is it allows you to manipulate the resources you're given in perhaps unexpected but nevertheless highly beneficial ways. For example, and this makes my skin crawl, I have to say, one advantage of having access to your discussions in electronic form is that the app I use on my phone allows me to listen to y'all at 2.5 times normal speed. I find this efficient, easy enough to follow, and perhaps best of all, the four of you sound like mega geniuses at that rate. Have you ever, do you, do you speed up your podcast? Nathan? Uh, there was one time and it was because uh, Trip Fuller mentioned it on the Homebrew Christianity podcast that he listens to his at double speed that I said oh I'll, I'll be able to listen to two podcasts on the way to work I, I lasted for about 45 seconds. Yeah that's about the longest I can do I've tried it I've tried it on multiple occasions I accidentally bumped my thing I use Downcast he says he uses by the way let's buzz market uh, beyond pod but i use downcast anyway i mm-hmm. bump it sometimes and it accidentally uh doubles the speed and man i uh it it, it sounds like you're listening to a cartoon b <laughs> oh shoot and, you, and god forbid you have a podcast that does music because i mean then then of course it, it really sounds funny right but more oh, power and... to him if he wants to listen to us at double speed or triple speed or 300 times speed any way anybody wants to listen is fine with me but i can't do sure that stuff. sure now i will say that the potential to use resources in ways that weren't imagined before is definitely one of the great appeals to me of course i'm the the starry-eyed techno optimist of our trio or quartet however you imagine the christian humanist podcast at this point um and, and you know, but I would also say that historically, that's always been the case when new educational technologies have entered into the picture, right? Uh, when you have all of a sudden the ability to mass produce textbooks, that's a new technology that can be used in all sort of interesting ways, right? Uh, all of a sudden the content delivery doesn't have to be in the lecture. You can deliver some of the content while the students are not in the classroom and some while they're in the classroom, that's revolutionary. We don't think about it that way because it was that way when we were all growing up. But every new kind of delivery system has the potential to be revolutionary, I think. Yeah, and you know, it, those of us who are not starry-eyed techno-optimists forget just how <laughs> much counts as technology. You, oh, you, sure, made, you made sure. the point years ago in our cybernetics episode that stuck with me ever since that, in fact, I am a cyborg because I wear glasses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a, a an optical device attached to your body that helps you function at a higher level. I still think you need people to drag their feet. <laughs> and, and, of course, every time I have a cup of coffee and a student sees me, I say, uh, I've got my performance-enhancing drug here. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I'm sure you do, Nathan. I do. And, and I... The crazy thing, though, is you're not talking about the coffee. You're talking about the speed you put in it. <laughs> if anyone from Emmanuel College is listening, no, I do not put speed in my coffee. 
Start the my, rumor though. Let that about, get, let that get around. About my Mountain Dew, I won't comment. <laughs> now, by Mountain Dew, do you mean the kind you find in Johnson City, Tennessee, or do you mean the kind you buy at the grocery store? Uh, you know, when I do get back to Johnson City, I do like to drink some Doctor Enough, which of course is the other and in my mind superior carbonated beverage developed in Johnson City, Tennessee. Oh, I just uh, meant, I just meant you know, Mountain Dew is an old-fashioned word for moonshine. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. But, I mean, the actual uh, commercial beverage, Mountain Dew, was also developed in Johnson City, Tennessee. I picked a, uh, I picked a, poor, place to, uh, a, a poor place to locate my moonshine. <laughs> uh, it, was, uh, it was a, a shine-running town, though, wasn't it? it was a, uh, oh, absolutely, okay. yeah. Al, Al Capone had a distribution base there. Minneapolis, too. How funny. Yeah, it's weird to think about him bumming around Johnson City, Tennessee, in Minneapolis. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, several years ago, I want to say in the mid '90s, when they demolished some buildings, they found some underground uh, alcohol warehouses that they would use to hide from, you know, state police and so forth. Did Geraldo hold a special? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. There's a deep cut, huh? Nobody, nobody under thirty will get that joke. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Are we ready for the next email? Yeah, let's do the next email. Uh, this is from a, a user who signs off as Richard Sa- Richard Sams, MD, MA. Uh, season's greetings. I'm a believer in a family physician and a medical educator of 18 years. Uh, a friend of mine, Jamie Garner, uh, English MA candidate at UGA, applying for PhD studies in English with focus on Milton. Go Milton. Uh, tune me on, turn me on to your podcast. I've been a longtime listener uh, of the Mars Hill Audio Journal, and Jamie thought I may like your discussions, which I have. Uh, time I listen- out, Nathan. Do we know this Jamie Garner? Uh, no, but if Jamie Garner is an MA candidate, then Jamie Garner, uh, and that's one of those names I'm not going to guess the gender, yeah. is much younger than us. Yeah, well, that's true, especially you. <laughs> <laughs> Going on with the email... I listened to your podcast on the Middle Ages recently and appreciate your insights into the paradigms that shape the time period. Uh, one topic you all did not discuss was the role of the Catholic Church during the time period, uh, which I'm guessing was large except for... Oh, okay, okay, well, I'm, I'm misplacing my modifiers here. Uh, which I'm guessing was large except for our allusions to Dante and Aquinas. Okay, next paragraph. I get the impression that like all of historical inquiry and any other human endeavor for that matter, that your worldview informs your understanding and interpretation of that period. Just like the modern historian that you mentioned who bashed on the era, a new atheist as you described him, I wonder if you all have a high church perspective, much like Lewis did, being the Anglican that he was. Uh, I'm quite ignorant about the time period about Catholic Church history, but I wonder if it is during this period that the Catholic Church developed much of its uh, perversions to the faith, that Luther, Calvin, and others focused on during the Reformation. I suspect it took years and or centuries for the Church to develop many of the, what I would call, unusual traditions and beliefs, including purgatory indulgences, development of a cloistered religious body, abstinence of the priesthood, adoration of Mary, etc. I'd relish your comments. He goes on to say, additionally, I have a comment and question regarding development during that time period in the realm of medical history and progress, there certainly was a thousand-year stagnation in development for the most part, corresponding to the Middle Ages, where Galen's, teaching, Galen's teachings were perpetuated. 
Uh, it was until it wasn't until people started to look at the body closer, early anatomists and physiologists in the 1500s and 1600s, that any progress was made in our understanding of the human body and disease. To what extent did Middle Age worldview or Catholic theology play a part in that stagnation? Uh, I'll go ahead and take the first swing at this, Michael, and you can follow up however you'd like. One of the things that this line of questioning assumes uh, is that progress has always been an unquestioned good. Uh, I mention this because it's not just a medieval thing to be inherently conservative about things. You see this all over the place in the Platonic Dialogues. The idea is that you don't try to overcome wisdom, but you try to inherit wisdom. And this is even for Plato, who is a very radical thinker in his own right. Uh, for instance, he would say that, you know, uh, if one doctor has achieved ways to bring a patient to health, the next doctor shouldn't be in the business of trying to overcome him, but to imitate him. Uh, and of course, I'm, I'm pulling that from, among other places, the Apology and the Republic. Uh, so one of the things I would say is that you're precisely right that in the late Renaissance, the scientific revolution, the early Enlightenment, uh, you get the development of the idea of progress. And it, it seems odd to us that progress had to be invented because it's sort of the air that we breathe. We assume that if we're not progressing in some respect, we are stagnating. And I, and, you know, I point back to our uh, trio of Richard Weaver episodes with regards to ultimate terms. Uh, you know, just to note that by no means is progress always an unquestioned good, historically speaking. Now, the other thing I would say is that certainly, you know, I'm, I'm a reader of Luther and a reader of Calvin, and I have great respect for them. I also recognize that they were in a dogfight. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm less inclined than Richard is uh, to call those things perversions of the faith. I tend to regard them as historical differences and developments. Uh, now I, I realize that, you know, the, the Francis Schaeffer readers of the world, uh, aren't going to like that very much. Uh, it's going to sound relativistic. It's going to sign sound soft headed on my part. Uh, but it, it's where I live intellectually. So, uh, Michael, you want to, you, you want to take a stand against indulgences at least? Um, certainly against the abuses of indulgences. Yeah. But, I mean, frankly, if I remember right, I mean, the Council of Trent took care of that to a great extent as well. Yeah. So, but you go ahead and take a swing at that, Michael, because I, like I said, I'm, I'm probably the least Calvinist of the uh, Farmer Grubbs Gilmore trio. I'm not sure where Danny stands on such things, so I'll, I'll let you take a cut at this. I, I um, would recommend that our listeners listen to our sister podcast, the Christian feminist podcast, which just did an episode about Mariology um, that came out a couple of days before we're recording this. Right. And, and which, which of, focuses on Francisco Suarez, which I thought was just awesome. Yeah. But one of the, <laughs> one of their members is a, uh, well, she calls herself their token Catholic, but she, she goes into some detail about the Catholic history of the adoration of Mary that I found. I, I didn't know a lot of it. And I found it quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I, I am not, I am not the sort of Presbyterian who is uh, anti-Catholic in his pro-Reformationness. I, I think obviously there were abuses of the Catholic Church going on in the in the Renaissance. There were a, a long line of horrifyingly bad popes, wicked popes, really. I mean, we, bad is not really even the the right word for them. 
And I, right. I think the Reformation needed to happen. I regret that it had to be a schism instead of what Luther always wanted it to be, which was an actual reformation of the church. Uh, I, 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 but then, you know, I also wished that there hadn't been the, the great schism of, is it 1066 or 1054? 1054. I can never, one's the Norman conquest and one is the great schism. Yeah. Yeah. Norman conquest. Is, then I, I was thinking there was some kind of significant event in 1087 too, but I might be even more confused. Anyway, I wish we could I wish we could settle these differences without splitting off into a bunch of groups that think everybody else is going to hell. Uh I, I will I will agree that that some of the things Richard brings up and attributes to medieval Catholicism are problematic to me. Uh I, I don't know that I would call the adoration of Mary a perversion. I don't know if I would call purgatory a perversion. I even though I don't adore Mary and I, I don't believe in purgatory. Um, so maybe I'm a maybe I'm one of those soft-headed relativists too. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I you grow up Protestant and the, the well, a certain species of Protestant, and the Catholics are are treated so badly. Um, I just I don't want to fall into that. So maybe I err too far on the other side and and say it's all good, man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like the Catholics. Right, and and this is what I tell folks at my church, Richard, and, I, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and you know say that this is a speech developed over many sessions of adult Sunday school at Athens Christian Church. If you are in a context like 16th century Europe where Luther and Calvin were operating, where state Catholicism is the only option on the block, it makes a lot of sense to write polemical treatises against the papists. Uh, I don't blame Calvin for Book Three of the Institutes, although I don't find a lot of it terribly spiritually edifying because it's a very, very long takedown of the Catholic Church, which frankly isn't what's first and foremost on my own threat list as a Christian. Although it uh, might have been if you'd been living when Calvin lived. Oh, precisely, precisely. I mean, it's precisely because I am a 21st century Christian rather than a 16th century Christian that that, that I can say that. What I will say is that in our moment, uh, you know, having spent some time in really a relatively conservative but still a university English department, uh, I found that I had far more in common with the practicing Catholics than I did with the bevy of agnostics and atheists with whom I also worked. Absolutely. Uh, So, I mean, it's one of those things where uh, I think that historical moment is important. Uh, if David Grubbs is out there listening, he's saying, of course you do, Nathan, uh, <laughs> because that's where I always go with this. Uh, but this is really one of those places where, you know, my historicism comes into play and I say, OK, uh, I can understand where they are coming from in their moment. It happens not to be my moment. One of the nice things about the decline of faith in the West is that it does allow Protestants and Catholics, I hope, to stop seeing each other as enemies in any meaningful sense. And now we can kind of stand together on what is our shared tradition and that doesn't mean every tradition is our shared tradition but it means there is a certain set of things that we can learn from one another and we can lean on and you know we have a number of catholic listeners and Mm -hmm. uh, i appreciate them and i wish we had a catholic member of this panel so that we could represent catholicism better than the 
three or four Protestants who make up our ranks are able to do. So uh -huh. I, I really appreciate that they have Sarah on um, the Christian Feminist podcast because, you know, that's a that is a voice that Protestants are too easy to forget. Sure. Too easy, too ready to forget. It's a voice that's too easily forgotten. There you go. There's that. Well, there's that specificity and preci precision in language. <laughs> well, Michael, why don't you tell us aloha? I'm not gonna find it. Ah, aloha from a listener in Hawaii. <laughs> yep, he says you, this is from Mark Bryan's. Yep, he says you have all made it to the islands of Hawaii. Myself and some of my good friends, mainly the clergy of our church, which makes a grand total of three, really enjoy you guys. Mahalo for your kokua. I, I know mahalo means thank you. I don't know what kokua means. I, it means I'm glad you're reading this email, not me. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, I'm sure I'm terribly pronouncing these Hawaiian <laughs> words. Sorry. Uh, I can't I can't pronounce French words, and I study French, so uh, I have no hope with, with Hawaiian. That, that's the name of the language, right? Sounds good to me, man. All right. I wanted, first of all, to say thank you. God bless you, and may your tribe increase. Secondly, I wanted to posit some ideas for future episodes. Paolo Friere's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. We are the kind of people who thought your three-course discussion of Richard Weaver was your best. We'd gobble up another episode on rhetoric and pedagogy. Have you read that one? I've read excerpts. I've never read the whole thing. Oh, it's a good book. I, I enjoy it. I love it. I, I don't agree with all of it, but I think it is wonderful for bringing up questions I wouldn't have thought of on my own. Oh, well, maybe I'll read it and we can do an episode. Sounds good. One of my, one of my friends at Crown um, really loves Paulo Freire. Mm -hmm. Radical orthodoxy, which is something I know almost nothing about except that James K. Smith is involved in. I know you love radical orthodoxy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read some John Milbank. I've read some uh, Graham Ward, some Catherine Pickstock, uh, some uh, William T. Cavanaugh. Um, I don't know if David Bentley Hart is included in there. I think he should be. Uh, that that is definitely a flavor of theology that I resonate with greatly when I can understand it, which isn't always. Uh, now the problem is I, I think that would end up being a point zero one episode because I'm the only one who's really read widely in it. Yeah. Uh, but I will say this. Uh, I almost called him Brian, but it's Mark Brian's. I'll tell you this, Mark. Uh, if I can get to it in the next spell, uh, notice the unspecificity of my time reference there uh i might try to read and blog through john milbank's theology and social theory the way that i did this summer with walter brueggemann's uh theology of the old testament you did that in the fall we we went through Gadamer in the summer oh you're right you're right son of a gun all right always trying to cut me out of things just because i missed that one week <laughs> no i just don't have a working calendar in my head and then his third his third suggestion is, how then shall we live life after David Grubbs? <laughs> we are not going to do that episode because Grubbs is coming back. You know he what's going to happen when he finishes his dissertation? He's going to ask Danny, and they're going to go off and do their own show. You think so? Yeah, and then, then we'll lose all our listeners. Yeah, we really will, because, I mean, they're pretty much our studs. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's about all the email we've got. However, we also receive a good deal of listener feedback on our Facebook page. Uh, and I'm going to start off with a message from, I'm pulling it up here, listeners, sorry. For some reason, my Facebook page re reset on me. From Mark Anthony Tara Thomas, who wrote in on Facebook. Hello, Christian Humanist. He says that he doesn't come to praise David Grubbs, but to bury him. <laughs> oh goodness uh still <laughs> okay that's gonna take me a second now 
Still waiting for the Neil Postman episode, hands on hips, stern look on face, tapping foot. As I wait, I thought I would share this article with you and the hordes of Facebook followers you have. By the way, we're up to 293. If you all can get some more people to give us the thumbs up, we'll be up to that magical 300, and I will be terribly happy. Uh, Michael, do you know if Grubbs or Anderson have read any Neil Postman? Uh, Danny, we, we talked about doing an episode on amusing ourselves to death, and Danny was open to it. Whether that means he has read it, or whether it means he is open to reading it, I don't know. Grubbs must have read Neil Postman, right? I don't know. I, I know you and I have, but their, I... Their I, personalities are so similar. Oh, sure, sure. And I mean, I'm, I'm a Neil Postman fiend, so I, I would absolutely jump at the uh, opportunity to do a Neil Postman episode. I, I You know, I that also might be a .01 episode because... No, I, I've of, read Amusing Ourselves to Death, so I mean, if nothing else, we could do that book. Oh, okay, okay. Actually, the one I'd like to do is uh, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century because it is the most... I'll, I'll put it this way. It's it's the book in praise of the Enlightenment that I like best. He he has me convinced by the end of that book that the Enlightenment was a good thing to have happen. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I haven't read that, but I would be open to it if I could find the time. I am teaching five classes this semester. Yeah, I know that feeling. I know, I know that feeling. Um, another Facebook message to hit really quick. Uh, came to us from uh, Mike, and I'm going to mess this name up too, uh, Sarcasus. There's no R, it's just, I think, Sarcasus. Sarcasus, you're right, you're right. Oh, you've got it up on your screen? No, I just saw it on Facebook. I, I, oh, okay, I'm very, okay. The message. No, my, my computer went into a spin, so I, oh, I but I've got it now. Uh, Mike says, very glad to have stumbled upon your site via Matthew Lee Anderson. Greatly appreciated your Why Christian Humanist page and the vision and sensibility it exudes. As someone who is about the business of recovering Christian humanism in my own little corner of the world, it immediately resonated. I'm in the process of a doctoral program as well, so best wishes to those of you engaged in that work as well. I look forward to following your good work. So, always good to hear that sort of thing, especially from folks who are in the graduate school scrum. Uh, I know that, you know, when... The three of us were in a graduate program in the humanities. It was nice to have friends to bounce Christian philosophical and theological questions off of. Uh, And so I'm glad that we can provide at some distance and, you know, through different media, some of that service to some of our listeners who are in grad school. So... Uh, any other listener feedback or any other bits that you want to comment on, Michael? Yeah, I would like to, uh, if you haven't gotten this in the mail, I'm sure you will soon. Um, I, I, a friend of mine from college is running a, a small literary magazine called Tree Killer Press, and he sent me a copy in the mail <laughs> um, over over the break. And I, I did want to plug that on the show. Uh, that I, It's a fine magazine uh he's doing original stuff in it and he's reprinting kind of public domain pieces so uh our our listeners would be advised to check that out uh let's see i think now that i say it of course i don't have anything open <laughs> um it's treekillerpress.blogspot.com okay and, and and they have you can download the entire issue for free as a pdf and i think well, I guess that's the only thing you can do. With with it being called Tree Killer, there must be a way you can get a uh, a print 
version, but uh, one would help. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can email Nate from that that website. So I I do recommend mm-hmm. it. It's a it's a neat it's a neat publication. They cover all sorts of stuff, and they're they're looking for submissions. So I'm sure uh, many of our listeners have some poems or stories or record reviews or anything else they'd like to to send to Tree Killer. Have you gotten mm-hmm. that in the mail yet? I, I think he was sending you a copy. Oh, I, if I have, I missed it, but I'm I'm pretty sure I haven't. I, I suggested he send one to you and Danny and Grubbs, and you know he he, uh, he asked me how old Danny was and said that his picture on the uh, the website made him look like a guy from the fifties. <laughs> I said I think that I think that is the I think that is the vibe he's going for. Yeah, it really is. I mean that that's definitely the persona he's constructing. So, mission accomplished, Danny. <laughs> Did we say where Danny is this week? No, go ahead. Danny is at MLA presenting the National MLA in Chicago. He's presenting a paper on Jewish werewolves or some some such. Right. The which, Modern Language Association Conference for those of our listeners not in the literature world. Which uh for the life of me, doesn't uh doesn't Jewish werewolves sound like what you would make up if you were making making a, a fake paper for Danny, <laughs> making fun of him? Uh, you know, honestly, I mean, I, I fully expect to see the title of his paper referenced in a This is Why the Humanities Are Dying essay soon. <laughs> you know, that would be a fun episode, too. And we should just open this to our, our listeners. Um, the, the challenge, and we'll send you a Christian Humanist Windbreaker if you win. Uh, <laughs> s- send us the title of the, uh, the, the, the fake paper belonging to me and to Nathan and to David. Or Danny, if the Jewish werewolves one doesn't do it. Oh, anything. yeah, well, we got to give Danny a fake paper. I mean, we can't just leave him with his real one. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we'll, send you, we'll send you one of our non-existent windbreakers mm-hmm. if you'll, uh, if you'll, if you'll send, us, uh, send us our fake papers. <laughs> so that, that's the contest. And we'll, we'll that's read the, fun, that's we'll, fun. We'll read the best entries uh, on the air. Sounds good. Well, Michael, I think this is going to be a short one today because it was all, like I said, listener feedback. There wasn't a whole lot of episode prep involved, obviously. Uh, what are we going to be – well, we aren't going to be doing anything because I'm going to be uh, away from the microphone. What are you and Danny going to be doing next week? I don't know this for sure, but I think the plan is for him to give us a report from MLA because I've never been to MLA, not the national one, and I don't know anyone who's been to the national one as far as I can remember, and it is getting an awful lot of negative press uh, right now. I don't know if you've been seeing these articles that come up about what a drag that place apparently is. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm interested to see what he comes up with, what uh, how his presentation goes, what sorts of papers he sits in on, if he sees any trends, that kind of thing. So I think that's what we're going to do. Uh, it will likely not be another, it, it will not likely not be a full hour next week either. It'll probably be a shortish episode as well, but we will be back to the full episodes with all three of us the week after that. Right, right. And I'll be at the helm at that point, and Danny and Michael will announce what we're doing next week when I have sent notes to them. Uh, so, right now, listeners, I want to start off the new year by thanking you for listening, thanking you for downloading. Uh, like I said, we're almost to the 300 uh, thumbs up mark on Facebook. Uh, we're to the point where we're getting lots and lots of, of listener email. Uh, we are featured on a couple Christian College Library websites. Uh, I mean, here at the, what, what is this, Michael, the four and some change year mark, uh, I, I just want to go ahead and say that, I mean, we continue to do this because you all are out there uh, and because you're enjoying what we are doing. And I want to thank you for just being part of this ride because I've had a blast doing it. 
so on that note, to start off this new year, uh, I want to encourage you to continue to point folks to ChristianHumanist.org, continue coming to our Facebook page, continue going to that iTunes page, leaving us ratings with lots of stars, writing us glowing reviews. Uh, in the meantime, while you're waiting for that report from the MLA, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and the absent Danny Anderson and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. You always right to ask How come I don't write back That would start I finally found it In my heart